uh, Neil, and um, today we're trying to get through chapter 11 if possible. But last week's message dealt with the uh, mighty angel that came to John, and if you were in the class last week, what you saw was that this angel brings the message, and it's said to come without delay. It's going to be fulfilled shortly, Revelation chapter 10, verses 6 and 7. Um, John's message that he was going to receive, he was told to eat it, just like Ezekiel, to consume the message of this book and to devour it. It would be bitter in his stomach, but sweet to his taste. And I guess the bitter aspect of that is that the Christians are going to have to deal with some level of persecution, but the sweet aspect is God's punishment coming on their enemies as a result. Uh, one final thing before we get into chapter 11 today is that the similarity between chapter 10 and chapter 11 is John's heavy use of Old Testament imagery. And John has been talking about the persecution that the Romans are bringing, but God's punishment on them. And we'll see more of that today in chapter 11. So what John ate in the message last week in the scroll is what's going to be shown today in chapter 11. As John tells us about the message that was ultimately received and what that message consists of. So if you have your Bible, we'll go ahead and start in Revelation 11. And um, I'll read the first, the first two verses here. It says, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. All right. All right. So you've got the temple there in Revelation chapter 11. I thought those would come up one at a time, but it's okay that the color came up with it. And Revelation 11, 1 and 2, John is given a measuring rod and a staff, and he's told to go out and measure a temple. What do you think the purpose of John measuring the temple is supposed to symbolize? What do you think that's about? It symbolizes God's protection of the city. So John's told to go out and measure the temple, and it's about God's protecting the city and the city remaining safe no matter what. The city, of course, we'll talk about what that means in a moment, but it's symbolizing God's going to protect whatever this holy city is and keep it from ultimately being destroyed. It's God's way of saying, I know the people that are there, and they won't be ruined or destroyed. This comes up in Ezekiel chapter 40, where Ezekiel is also told to go out and measure a city and make sure that it is also not consumed. Some take this reference to be to the literal temple. So people that believe the early date of Revelation, they'll say, this is about the temple in Jerusalem. I don't believe that's the case. I believe John wrote in about AD 90. And so that means the temple in Jerusalem at this point is already destroyed. But the temple that John's told to go out and measure would be who or what? Who do you think that is? Russell? Yes, the church. So John's told to figuratively go out and measure the church, and God's going to keep the church from being destroyed. And this is what happens in Ezekiel as well. There's not a literal temple standing up, but Ezekiel's told to go and measure a temple that would be built later. And that's what the back half of Ezekiel is really all about in chapters 40 through 48. And so here's a question for us to think about. Where else in the book of Revelation do we have or read about destruction coming and God's people being kept safe? Where else does that come up? And what did they have that kept them safe? Where God says, I'm going to destroy all these people, but my people are going to be kept safe. Where does that come up? Earlier, in, well, the Passover, yeah, but in Revelation, in the book of Revelation, where we read about people being destroyed and God keeping his people safe. And what did he do? He didn't measure them the first time, but what else was done to keep them safe? 
he's sealed in Revelation 7, 1 through 4. So this is just another restatement of that idea. They're going to be kept safe, and a part of that is John is supposed to go out and measure the city. And this just means when God comes in to destroy, he won't utterly annihilate. He'll make a different differentiation between his people and Romans. So God's going to measure them and keep them from being destroyed. We sometimes think about the church kind of one-dimensionally. We'll talk about it in these terms. We'll say, well, the church represents the body of Christ. That's true. The church represents the bride of Christ. That's true. And we've got these different designations for the church, but we probably should broaden our scope and to the best of our ability, try to use all of the terms that the New Testament uses to describe the people of God. And one of those terms is the temple. What did the temple signify in the Old Testament? What was the temple all about in Old Testament times? It's where God dwelt. It was where God met his people. You think about the temple that Solomon built in 1 Kings chapter 8, and the glory of God comes down and envelops that temple. And that happens again in Acts chapter 2 when the Spirit of God comes down, dwells in the apostles, and then, of course, everybody who obeys the gospel. Russell? Wherever they went, they took the way. Yeah, the tabernacle first. So there's the tabernacle first in the days of Moses, and then the temple in the days of Solomon. But both, both structures deal with God's presence among his people. Look at a few passages in the New Testament that talk about the church of the temple. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. First Corinthians chapter 3 and notice verse 16 and verse 17. First Corinthians 3.16, Paul says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now 1 Corinthians 3 is talking about the church collectively. 1 Corinthians 6 is talking about us more individually. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 19 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, who you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought with the price, so glorify God in your body. And the New King James and King James adds on at the end, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which belong to God. But the New Testament over and over again calls God's people a temple. And those various designations, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the church, or the temple, they all mean the same thing. They're referring to us as God's people, but the New Testament uses different designations to drive on different aspects of our relationship with God. And we would better appreciate our relationship to God, I think, if we sometimes zoom out and use all of those different designations that the New Testament uses. Same thing about our relationship to God and the way the New Testament describes it. There's the church, the church of Christ, the church of God. All of those various distinctions and designations are made to cast different shades of meaning on our relationship with God. And our understanding of it is enriched when we use them, when we're as diverse as the New Testament is in describing ourselves to God. And so in Revelation 11, what John says is, you're the temple of God. God's going to measure you and keep you from being destroyed. Okay, then he talks about in verse 2, do not measure the court on the outside of the temple. Leave that out. It's given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. So John's told not to measure the outer court. What do you think the outside court refers to in Revelation 11 too? If the temple is the church, and John's going to measure that, which signifies God's protection of the people of God as he's about to pour out these his wrath and persecution and the seventh trumpet is going to be blasted, what's the outer court represent? 
Somebody said the world. Yeah, that's right. Well, there are some different views. I think it is the world. Some people think that the inner court is the pure and true church, and the outer court represents the apostate church. People that were faithful, they went back out into the world because of Roman persecution. Others think the court refers to God's church, and the outer court refers to their non-Christian persecutors, or as Vivian and Kevin have said, the world. And so John speaks to those who are inhabitants of the earth and those who are on God's side. And I believe John's saying, measure the church. But those who don't repent, they'll be punished and don't measure them, leave them outside. And then the last thing before we move on is John says, leave the outside is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. What is the 42 months all about? Didn't y'all mention, we talked about this last week. I think Neil mentioned something about the 42 months. I think it comes up in chapter 10 or John mentions it another way. But what did you find on the 42 months? What do you think that refers to? There's going to be a trampling outside of the court for 42 months. They'll be able to trample the holy city. By the way, I think we'll get some help if we can figure out what the holy city is. What is the holy city? In the book of Revelation, when in doubt, just say the church. You probably might be right. Just guess and say the church. Yeah, so John's using different designations. Remember, hey, we're going to measure the temple. That's the people of God. People outside the temple, we're not going to measure them. They're going to be destroyed. They won't be protected. But the people on the outside that aren't going to be protected for 42 months, they're going to be able to torment the holy city, which is also the church. So what is that telling you about the church during this time of persecution? What is God going to allow to happen? Persecution. Yeah, God's going to allow them to be persecuted. And the Bible says that's going to happen for 42 months. Okay, 42 months is a number depicted in various ways in the book of Revelation. 42 months, how much time is that? Somebody do the math real quick on that. How many years is 42 months? Three and a half. Three and a half. Okay, this next slide. It probably won't come up one by one. Yeah, all of them are going to come up like this today, and y'all are going to listen because you're going to start. <laughs> <laughs> this is terrible. I thought I had these slaves come up one at a time, but I'll just back up, and then I'll let y'all scratch. How about that? All right. So 42 months in the Bible is the equivalent of three and a half years. This is going to matter. I'm going to show you on the next slide when we get to it. 42 months is three and a half years. Okay, somebody else real quick. How many days is that? 1,260, which you're going to see in verse 3. So John's going to say this same thing several, several different ways. 42 months, 1,260 days, three and a half years, or the way Daniel says it in Daniel chapter 7 is times, time, and a half a time. In Daniel, a time stands for a year. So times would be two years, time would be three, and a half a time would be what? A half, that's three and a half. In the Bible, it's 42 months. It means a period of testing. It's not a literal time period, and I'll show you several places where this comes up. But three and a half years in the Bible, 42 months, 1,260 days. When you see that type of term terminology, it just means a period of hardship, difficulty, or testing. Anytime you see those phrases, times, time and a half a time, three and a half years, 42 months, 1,260 days, it's a way that God's communicating to people that there's going to be difficulty and hardship for a time. For reference on that, see Daniel 7.25 and also Daniel 12 and verse 7. So this holy city, the church, is going to be trampled on the outside for 42 months. Um, in other places outside of Revelation, like I said, it deals with the time of testing. All right, I hate to do this, but here we go. All right, so there's your map, right? Three and a half years, 42 months, 1,260 days, all mean the same thing. Go to Revelation 13 and verse 5. 
Revelation 13, 5. Let's get somebody to read that for us. First person that gets there that wants to. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. All right, so same thing. This comes up again. The beast, we'll talk about who that is in chapter 13. But exercising authority for 42 months. Same thing as three and a half years. Same thing as 1,260 days. Just means you're going to have time, power for a limited time. So throughout the Bible, this three and a half years of 42 months. Elijah, 1 Kings 17, how long was he out in the wilderness? I'll give you a hint. It's on the screen. Three and a half years, according to Jesus in Luke chapter 4 and verse 25. The Babylonian response to Zedekiah's revolt in Jeremiah 52 and in 2 Kings 25 was said to last for about three and a half years. Before you go into Babylonian captivity, there's going to be three and a half years of hardship. Antiochus Epiphanes. This isn't in the Bible, but First and, first and Second Maccabees are historical books that took place in between Malachi and Matthew. So they're not in the Bible, but they're authenticated historical accounts of what Jewish people were facing right before Jesus came. And in fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy, the Jews were persecuted by a Greek man named Antiochus Epiphanes, for about three and a half years. How long was Jesus' ministry? About how long? About three, three and a half years. And his entire life is viewed as a period of trial or a period of testing. 1260 days times time, half a time. Revelation 13, 5, and also Jerusalem before it was destroyed in Matthew 24. The siege from Rome. Rome stayed outside of Jerusalem for about 42 months, according to 1 Maccabees and other passages. So, when you read in Revelation that there is this period of testing, and we'll come back and make application later about this, but this section just tells us that God's people are measured. You're safe. But that doesn't mean God's going to keep you from the difficulty completely. There will be some hardship that God lets you undergo. And this matters for us. And at the end, when we do the hearing and keeping, I'll drop on this point more. But just think about your life. If you're in Christ, you're measured. You're in the temple. You're saved. But everybody's life has a three and a half month period. Everybody, or three and a half years, everybody has their 1260 days. That, but what else does that tell you, by the way, that time? What does that tell you, this time of testing? God's not going to keep you completely from hardship. You will suffer. But what does the time limit signify to you? It doesn't last forever. It's, it's limited. It's not eternal. And so, by the way, what's the perfect number in Revelation? Seven. What's half of seven? Your suffering's not complete. Your salvation is. Seven, you're set. You're sealed. But your suffering is incomplete. It's the half of seven. So God's going to let you go through some hardship, but it won't last forever. It won't completely ruin you and destroy you. Look at Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, and this is where Jesus is about to send his disciples out on what we call the limited commission. And there's this same principle about enduring under, under hardship and difficulty. Revelation, Matthew 10 and verse 22, Jesus says in verse 22, You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Why do you think John, Jesus, and the New Testament keeps emphasizing this reality from different angles throughout the Bible? Why keep mentioning 1,260 days, 42 months, three and a half years? Why hone in on the Christian suffering from these various angles in the book of Revelation? Why does John keep circling back to this thing? Most those that are suffering, it seems like it's going to be forever. And he's trying to get them to look past the front of us. Okay, so John's saying, hey, your suffering's going to be temporary. He's continually remi reminding them of that so that they 
look past that current moment and they won't give up. I think Jesus is doing that in Matthew 10, 22. Why else does John mention the suffering of Christians from these different vantage points? 1260 days, three and a half years, times, time and a half a time. Why does John keep bringing it up and saying it in different ways? It's going to happen. It's going to be your reality and you should probably get ready for it. What else? What else? Why does John keep bringing it up? Lee, you said something earlier. It's not permanent. It's, it's temporary. And John wants them to know that God knows it's happening to them too, so that they won't think, well, God's sleeping on the job. He's allowed me to go through all this. God doesn't see what I'm suffering. God sees it. In fact, your life is measured, but so are the days of your suffering. It won't last. It won't last permanently. Okay, Revelation 11. Let's read 3 down through 14. Because the way the slides are, I'm going to have to do those last. Because I'm, some of y'all are like, I'm taking notes. I want to get my sheet filled in. So anyway, 3 down through 14. John's told, I will grant authority to my two witnesses. They will prophesy for 1,260 days. If I was writing in my Bible and I wasn't going to remember all this, I would just put limited time period, short time, or something like that to remind me of what this refers to. I will grant the authority to my two witnesses, and they'll prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. Now, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have power to shut the sky so that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and strike the blood, the earth, with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they finish their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the people and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in the tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on all those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past, and behold, the third woe is soon to come. Okay, John's told that God will grant authority to his two witnesses. How long would they prophesy? 1,260 days. Same thing. All right, the idea of the two witnesses here probably goes back to something in the Old Testament. How many witnesses did you need in the Old Testament for your testimony to be considered valid? Two or three. Look at Deuteronomy 17 on this. Deuteronomy 17 and verse 6. Can we get somebody to read Deuteronomy 17, 6? On the evidence of the two witnesses, or three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. All right, so same thing comes up in Deuteronomy 19.5, and this is the text that's behind Jesus' words where he says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. If you've got to exercise discipline on somebody in the church, 
and you've got two or three witnesses, really the whole church, because this person won't repent, I'm there with you. When John says, hey, these two witnesses show up, he's saying their testimony is confirmed. They've done their work for 1,260 days. They are the two witnesses. Their testimony is confirmed, and God stands with them. They're clothed in sackcloth, which represents what in the Bible? What is sackcloth about? Why do you wear that? Morning. Yeah, you had to be really sad to put that on. They say sackcloth kind of feels like sandpaper. It'd be that rough on your skin, but people would wear that in time of mourning. Who wore that in the Bible when they were suffering? We know Job did. It's also in Genesis 37 and verse 34 and in 2 Samuel 3 and verse 31. So the two witnesses prophesy for a limited time that clothed in sackcloth. And then the million-dollar question, who are the two witnesses? Who do they sound like, by the way, in the Old Testament? Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah, right. So that's who some people believe they are. Suggestions have been Moses and Elijah, Elijah and Elisha, Enoch and Elisha, Peter and Paul. Some people say they represent the law and the prophets. Other people say no, they represent the Old and New Testament. Some people say they represent the Jew and Gentile churches. Whoever they are, I'm going to tell you who I think they are in a moment. We know they're not literal. They're representative, right? Because of the stuff that's happening here, they're representative. We know that Elijah is described in the Old Testament as coming back. Who actually came back is Elijah, though? John the Baptist. Baptist. It wasn't literal. Malachi says in Malachi 4 and verse 5, one day Elijah is going to come back and prophesy to God's people. Elijah didn't really come back. John comes back, representative of Elijah. So these two folks come, and they're representative. Who do you think they are? Who do you think they are? Okay, and I think Ms. Vivian says she thinks it's Enoch and Elijah because they didn't die. Elijah, they didn't die like everybody else. I think that's why some people think that. You remember Genesis 5, 24, Enoch walked with God. He was not. God took him. 2 Kings 2, 11, Elijah was taken up in a whirlwind. Some people think it's them. Uh, Andy? I can see why, uh, I can see the case being made for them representing the law <laughs> and the prophets because they're witnesses, they're testifying. Jesus says, the law and the prophets testify about me. Moses being kind of the giver of the law and Elijah being the greatest of the prophets. And I can kind of see that symbolically. Okay, so law and prophets. I'm just trying to see what my cheat slide says here So before I pull it up for y'all. Okay, who else? Who else do we think they are? Maybe. <laughs> Who says, I don't know, just flip the slide. Okay, great. Um, listen, when it down to Revelation, I'm going to tell you the answer probably represents who? I think it's a representative. And I'm going to show you why I think this is the case. The two are literal. They're representative. Two symbolizes the testimony of a group that's been verified. And who has John been talking about in the first two verses already? The church. He's talked about this city that's measured. He's talked about a temple that's measured. I don't think John's changed subjects. I think he's talking about the same thing. And... There are some keys in this text that I think help us with the guesswork. And here they are. Look at verse 3. John says that he gave authority to his two what? What does he call them? Witnesses. Witnesses. What did Jesus tell the apostles? Now y'all are right and y'all quit. Okay. (laughs) Listen. What did Jesus tell the apostles in Luke 24 and in Acts 1 and verse 8? You'll be my what to all the nations? Witnesses. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's at least a hint of who these folks might be. But there's more, though. They're called olive trees, which represents in the Old Testament priests and individuals that did service. The Christians are the priests, according to John in Revelation 1, 5, and 6, and in chapter 5 and verse 10. They're also said to be lampstands. And where else do we read about that in the book of Revelation? Who are the lampstands in the book of Revelation? The church. 
the churches according to Jesus in Revelation 1.20. And then the fire that comes from their mouth is their message. I think these two prophets are two individuals. It's representative of the church in opposition to Rome. So Rome's persecuting the church, three and a half years, 1260 days. And John sees the church represented as these two witnesses fighting back and standing up against them and refusing to cower in fear and just go away. They continue to preach. They continue to do God's work, even in the midst of hardship. But what about all of this miraculous stuff? It says that they're able to do a few things. Look at verse 6. They have power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during their days of their prophesying, and they have power over the waters. When did that happen in the Bible? Elijah and who else? What about this um, turning waters into blood and striking the earth with every kind of plague? That happened in the days of Moses. What does this have to do with the church? I think John's being told the church in the days of Roman persecution has the same power that God's people had in previous generations, and they've got nothing to fear. Here's something for us to think about. Would you say that the church today in 2023, do you think we're at a disadvantage today because we don't have the miraculous? You ever wish we had it? Some of y'all do. Y'all want to call down curses like John. <laughs> yeah. Why, why do you, are we at a disadvantage without the miraculous? I'm seeing some people kind of shaky. Would we be better off with miraculous, you think? I think it would be easier to prove to those that like the atheists. Okay. Like that. You think? But what? Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> but like, no, in the sense of we have the Bible and you should believe that. Okay. So Hannah says it'd be easier to prove to people that are atheists if we could do a miracle. And I think I think the same way. I've heard people say, if I could just see one miracle, that would do it for me. Do you think that's true, though? That's what I was looking at you kind of weird. And I was like, well, I agree with you, but Jesus rose from the dead. And Matthew 28, 17 says, when some saw him raised from the dead, they fell on his feet and worship, and others doubted. They saw him, and they thought, I don't know about this. They saw miracles, and they said, well, one more. Matthew 16, 1 through 4. Um, do one more sign from heaven. But I think we tend to think that way for sure. Russell? I was going to say, they had Jesus, and not everyone obeyed. Resurrection. I mean, if you saw, saw or seen the Son of God crucified, put in a tomb, raised, and that didn't do it, what's it going to take? Yeah. I mean, I think we do get to see God doing things, great things. Yeah, God does work even without the miraculous. Anybody else? <clears throat> yeah, God will answer our prayers for sure. Prayer is powerful. You already kind of said it in the scripture that you go into. I mean, Paul had enough problem with it without it. And then some people starting to divide up. Oh, well, I'm Paul's teaching. I'm Paul's teaching. Yeah. We got that today without any miraculous deals. There are miracles today. People start worshiping the miracles. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. For sure. Here's what we know. God didn't give them to us, so evidently we are not at a disadvantage, right? Because if it was needed for us to do our work and God wants us to be successful, we would have it. So whatever God's given us is probably what's best, and we don't need them today. The miracles were signposts to point beyond themselves to something else. 
And so we're not at a disadvantage, but they do help where they did in some ways help people authenticate the message. The churches in the days of Revelation had power similar to the prophets. I think that's all John's saying. Hey, they had power that if individuals wanted to look on, they could see what was going to happen. Let's just try to move a little bit quicker through the rest of this. Verse 7 says, after they finish their testimony, a beast rises from the bottomless pit, kills them, makes war on them, and then their dead bodies lie in the street. And so this is a reference to them being persecuted, them being killed. They're going to suffer. This probably goes back to the three and a half years of hardship. Their dead bodies lie in the street. In the Old Testament, one of the greatest signs of disrespect were for you to not have a proper body. To leave your body. In fact, you see this in two places I'm thinking of right now. Saul's men courageously rushing to Jabesh Gilead in 1 Samuel 31 and get his body. The Philistines have cut off his head. They want to give him a proper burial. You remember Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus. They go to Pilate, beg for the body of Jesus to give him a proper burial. Those women come to the tomb. It was the highest sign of disrespect for a person's body to be left to the elements. That's what Saul, John Goliath says today. You remember, I'm going to feed your flesh to the birds this day. Not just kill you, but you won't even get a proper burial. This is how bad the Christians are being disrespected. They're being killed, bodies left to the elements. But then it says their dead bodies will lie in the street. The great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt in verse 8, where their Lord was crucified. And they'll be there for how long in verse 9? What does that mean? They'll be there for three and a half years. A short time. And then their bodies will be what? Yeah, verse 9. For three and a half years, some from the peoples and tribes and nations will gaze at their dead bodies, refuse to let them be placed in the tomb. And those that dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry and exchange presents. But then, verse 11, after three and a half days, a breath of life from God into them, and they stood up on their feet. So God's people are going to suffer, but God's going to breathe life back into them. This could be pointing to the resurrection at the end of time. Jesus says in John 5, 28 and 29, the hour is coming. All that are in the grave will hear my voice and come out. Those that have done good to the resurrection of life and those that have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. All right. And then there are these cities. The great city persecutes them called Sodom and Egypt. And I believe that's a reference to Rome in verse 8. Sodom and Egypt are wicked cities in the Old Testament. They're signed with wickedness. And I think that's what John's driving at. There's an earthquake in verse 12 and 13. 7,000 people are killed and a tenth of the city is destroyed. Look at the end of verse 11. Let's read verse 11. After three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those that saw them. Then they heard the loud voice from heaven, it being said, Come up here. They went up in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. At that hour, there was a great earthquake. A tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. So here's a question. This earthquake comes, the witnesses or the church, you could say, is resurrected. Her hardship is being temporarily removed. Some people die, but not all. We've seen this already in Revelation, temporary punishment. Why is God doing this? Hopefully to get Rome's attention. We haven't seen this yet, though. And commentary, commentators are divided on the end of verse 13. And so I want you all to tell me what you think about this. It says, a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. The rest were terrified and did what? What does the rest of your verse say? They gave glory to the God of heaven. Here's where the commentators are divided. In Revelation 9, when the bowls of wrath get poured out, people don't repent no matter what God does. 
Here it looks like some people are starting to change their minds. Some people are saying, this is not genuine repentance. These people aren't serious. Other people are saying, hey, part of Rome seems to have started to change their minds because of the wrath that's being poured out. 7,000 dead bodies, symbolically, a tenth of the city being destroyed. God has their attention. What do you think? you think this is genuine repentance or not? Okay, so Hannah says no, the third woe is coming. Andy? There's a saying, um, an old Christian saying, that the uh, blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. And when the church is persecuted, it grows. That could be where the growth is coming from. When the enemies of God are finally, some of them, not all of them obviously, but if some of them are getting the point, that could be where the growth is coming from when people see that... God is the one in control, and they realize that and the Christians, you can persecute them, but you can't defeat them. They join. Okay, so maybe this is causing individuals to repent, and as a result of that, the church is growing. Have you ever seen catastrophe in the world, and then people's lives cause them to turn to God? Yeah. How long does it last? Say a few months, we don't believe that people... Anybody else in the Bible have this experience? Hardship comes in their life then they repent and they're saying, okay, God, you got my attention out. I want to do what's right. Period of the judges. There's a cycle on that. Judges 2, 13 through 16. An individual. Can you think of a person there? Pharaoh, yeah. He says repent more than anybody else in the Bible. I've seen doesn't really do much repenting. Anybody else? First name, nephew. Last name, Knezer. All right, yeah, nephew, Knezer. Daniel 4, 34 and 37. He says, hey. I've been treated like a Babylonian chia pet, growing all this fur and stuff. Now I believe in God. I changed my ways, right? Nebuchadnezzar gets it. Here's what I want us to remember, though. Sometimes people face catastrophe and they don't repent. Okay, they're not sincere. But don't think that some people aren't. I heard Kirk, Kirk Brothers say that this was last year at the Connect Conference. He said his dad told him this, that in everybody's life, and he was talking about somebody. Something happened to them. They ended up in the hospital. He went and visited the person. I forget how the story turned out, but I remember him saying this about his dad. His dad told him that in everybody's life, something happens, or there's a time period, when they are willing to crack open the door for God just a little bit. And the door may only stay open for 10 seconds or 15 seconds. But if we're the people of God, in that moment, we want to try to put our foot in and keep the door open so that they might be able to welcome the gospel or at least listen to what God's saying. Everybody has a moment in their life when they think for at least even a smidge of a second, huh, could there be, or do I need to be, or am I in the right relationship, am I where I need to be? And if we don't capitalize, if we say, well, you know, they're not, they're only saying that because they're scared, hey, they're only saying that because of, we miss opportunity. And whatever you think about what's happening in the Revelation, the Bible says, they gave glory to God. They were fearful. So far as we know about Nebuchadnezzar, that's where the, new, the Old Testament ends on his testimony. He's a faithful king. So far as we know, he dies as a faithful Gentile who acknowledges who God is. And if that's right, we'll see him in glory. And so we shouldn't doubt that people can turn and change in the midst of hardship and difficulty. What does Romans 1 and verse 16 say? I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the what of God? It's the power. Do we believe that it's the power of God unto salvation, that people really can change? I don't know how many sermons he had to preach and books he had to write before people thought, all right, Paul really is a Christian. But he changed. 
And these folks in Revelation, I think this is what we find in here of genuine repentance as individuals change their ways. All right. The last section is a section of worship with the seventh trumpet in verses 15 through 19. Let's read that, and then we'll get to our hearing and keeping. The seventh angel blew his trumpet. There were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. The 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came in the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the Ark of the Covenant was seen at this temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. So the seventh trumpet finally blows, and what comes out is not punishment, but praise. And you see these interludes throughout the book of Revelation. The more you read the book of Revelation, the more you'll see it's not so much as it's confusing as it's repetitive. There's punishment. Some people repent, some people don't. The punishment's not complete. God's people praise him, and then John goes back into more punishment. There are these cycles that happen in the book. The punishment happens. The witnesses die. They're raised. God's wrath comes out on 7,000 and tenth of the city, and then heaven breaks out in praise again. What are they praising God for in verse 17 and verse 18? Well, it really goes back to 15, which is one of my favorite verses in the book, really in the Bible. It says the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. What does that mean? The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. What does that mean? I'm going to read it again. Listen to verse 15. The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. What does that mean about the kingdoms of this world? What does that tell you about them? They've been defeated. They've been defeated? Somebody said that? Yes. And what happens to them as they're defeated? Who reigns over them? Christ. Which kingdoms does verse 15 include? All of them. All of them. Every kingdom will eventually crumble and become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. That should make us sad, though. We should be the happiest people in the world because we're in that eternal kingdom. Every kingdom will expire. Everyone, they all do. All earthly empires eventually meet their end. They have an expiration date. And John says the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And heaven breaks out and worship over that. And so we should see all kingdoms growing mold on them. All their baskets crumbling slowly. Because they will. Daniel 2.44 says, The kingdom of Jesus won't just excel over all kingdoms. It will break in pieces. And the world's not big enough for everybody's kingdom and the Lord's. There's going to be in the end just Jesus' kingdom. And it's coming down and crushing every other kingdom in the world. Every empire, every nation eventually has to bow before Jesus Christ. The United States, Russia, China, they all got to meet their end in Jesus. And as we progress into the book of Revelation, what you're going to see is... The way John views the world is in stark contrast. There's the kingdom of God. There's the kingdom of the devil. There's the new heavenly city and every other nation. Every one of them is considered Babylon. Because they all have little corruptions in them that are antagonistic toward the kingdom. And this should make sense. I hope you're not confused about this. If there was a nation on the world that mirrored the nation of the church, it would make the church obsolete. 
So we should be able to find holes and pick them in every nation because they're not the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. The kingdoms of this world are becoming the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And that's just the reality. And John sees that and they break out in worship. Now that doesn't mean that God wants nations to be wicked or that nations don't have virtuous things about them because that's true. And God's always happy when that's the case. But John's just saying Rome and nations like her eventually meet their demise and meet their end. Jesus was the king that rules the earth, it says here. Verse 18, the nations rage, but God's wrath has come, and he is ultimately the judge. Verse 19, the temple of heaven is open, and John sees the Ark of the Covenant. I know people think they found the Ark of the Covenant. Nobody knows where the Ark of the Covenant is, okay? If you're walking out of Walmart or program, they've got a National Geographic, they found the Ark of the Covenant, keep your money. They don't know where it is, nobody <laughs> This probably is a reference to just God's presence with his people. Commentators believe when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple that they also destroyed the Ark of the Covenant. But we have God's presence today, and we don't need the physical Ark of the Covenant. All right, let's do the hearing and keeping of Revelation. And I'm not going to turn because I want to do these one at a time. We've got five minutes left. But if I turn the slide, you don't know what's going to happen. It won't be like this next week. I've got Canada brain right now, so that's what's happening. All right, number one. God's temple is measured and safe and secure. God will be with his people no matter what. That's one of the lessons we get from Revelation 11. No matter what happens, God's temple is measured and safe. God can keep his people from destruction. 2 Peter 2 and verse 9. Here's number two. Hardship doesn't always last. Psalm 30 and verse 5 says, Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. That's a principle that runs throughout the Bible. But here's what you and I should be thinking. Okay, three and a half years, 1260, I get all of that. My troubles won't last, but here's what we should be wondering. Do I have enough spiritual ammo in my tank to last my three and a half, whatever that is? Can I make it? When your clothes get too small, one of two things happens. They either pinch or they pop. That's what happens. That's what happens. Everybody's worldview, that's not the worldview of Christianity when hardship comes. It either pinches or pops. That's what happens. It rips. It won't last. Or it pinches them. They have to start thinking about things in a way they haven't before. Everybody's going to have that three and a half, 12, 60 times time and half a time. Everybody will. The good news is it won't last. But you and I won't last if we're not right now in times of peace making spiritual deposits that we can draw on when that time comes. We'll be exasperated beyond our resources if we're not storing up for the time to come. It will come. It always does. You might be there now. It's not going to last. But you've got to make sure that we do, we're doing our part now so that we won't crumble in that time period of testing and hardship. Here's number three. There is mighty power working on our side. Just because we don't have the miraculous, Russell's mentioned this and a few others, we still have God's resources on our side. The same God that was with Elijah and Moses and with the prophets is with us. And so we shouldn't view ourselves at a disadvantage. We should see that God doesn't have to work miraculous miracles to prove that he's still with us. I think there are eight of these. This may be number four. God will vindicate his people. It says in Revelation 11 that when these prophets rose from the dead, that their enemies looked on them. One of the reasons why there has to be a judgment. Have you ever thought about this? Why do we need a judgment day? If God knows where everybody's going, why waste time lining everybody up to judge them? One of the reasons is for the vindication of God's people. God wants the demons in hell, the devil and his angels, and everybody that's ever persecuted his people to say, look at these faithful ones. Why do we have graduation? Why can't they just give us our stuff and let us go? Why does everybody have to get there, wait in this long line, and if your child name starts with Z, you got to wait through everybody else? Why, can't, why do we do it? 
everybody needs to see you march across the stage and get what you earn. And God's going to vindicate his people. Not only is he going to vindicate us, he's going to make the whole world watch us while he us. Revelation 11 says, they saw them go into the clouds. They're going to see it. And hopefully we'll be on the right side of this. Some people's repentance is real. Here's the next one. And some people's repentance is fake. But we shouldn't try to figure that out for everybody. We should just trust that people can and do turn to God and be excited about it when they do. Go to Revelation 11 for this, this last one. Well, there may be two more. Go to Revelation 11 and notice verse 16. Somebody read Revelation 11, 16. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God. Okay. I'm going to suggest you try something. And hopefully... This will be a help to you spiritually, but change your posture, and it will influence your brains. Throughout the Bible, people take different postures in the presence of God, and it has an impact on you. The Bible says they fell on their face. If we're reading Matthew, Mark, and Luke together properly, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He falls to his knees, he's praying, sweat like great drops of blood. Eventually, Jesus is laying flat on the ground praying and crying out to God. Here are some of the postures we find in the Bible. People stand before God, Luke 18, 13, 2 Chronicles 20 and verse 5. Sometimes you find people sitting when they pray, Nehemiah 1 and verse 4. People bow down, Nehemiah 8 and verse 6. People kneel, Stephen did, Acts 7 and verse 60. Jesus did, Luke 22 and verse 41. Sometimes a person places their head between their knees, 1 Kings 18 and verse 42. There's people lying flat on the ground, Joshua 5 and verse 14, and of course Jesus in Matthew 26 and verse 39. Here's the question, when's the last time you fell on your face before God? I'm not talking about out here, okay? Worship has a specific focus and thrust, and we don't want to draw attention to ourselves or be a distraction, but do we ever change our posture in our prayer and in our praise to God? There's nothing wrong with doing it. There's nothing wrong with a person praying and lifting their hands. I'm not talking about in worship service, and I'm not even talking about like this to get extra, you know, reception or signal like antennas. But I am saying, Jesus lifted, lifted his face toward God. John 17, 1 Timothy 2, 8, lifting up holy hands. Again, I'm not talking about the worship service. I'm talking about in our private devotion. There's a reason for the various postures in the Bible. They communicate different things about our relationship to the divine. The lifting up of hands, yes, it deals with holiness, but it's also saying to God, I'm empty. I bring nothing before you but myself. Jesus raising his face in John 17. We bow our head and close our eyes to concentrate, but sometimes as we do that over and over again, our minds can check out. Change your posture, and it will energize your praise, potentially. The various postures in the Bible have a purpose. That's our time for today, but next week we'll get into Revelation chapter 12. If there's a question about any of this, though, feel free to talk to me about it. I'd love to discuss it with you. Thanks for your time and attention.